Well, I'm glad to be with you again this morning and um, to carry on uh, somewhat from where we left off last week. Uh, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed for uh, age-appropriate instruction, and <clears throat> we who are left and remain uh, until, <laughs> until the end of the sermon <laughs> will we'll be here. God does many wonderful things when he saves us. We receive his salvation by means of faith. We don't earn it, and we don't deserve it, but we receive it by faith. And once we receive it by faith, or when we receive it by faith, God goes to work and he changes everything about us spiritually. He makes us his children, and last week we saw that he elevates us to the status of sons by the technique or by the mechanism of adoption. He adopts us into his family, and I talked last week about a family, a couple that had adopted a sibling group of three, and with the drop of the judge's gavel, they were transferred out of their old family and into the new family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that all of us lived among them, that is, those uh, people who uh, were dead in their trespasses and sins. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were, and the NIV betrays me here a little bit because I wanted the word, we were by nature children of wrath, which is the, what the NS, NASB says. But anyway, I'll, uh, I'll take that up with the editors of the NIV at a later time. We were by nature children of wrath, and God takes us out of that old wrath-destined family, and he puts us into his family. And so Romans 8.17 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When he takes us out of that family and puts us into his family, he gives us his spirit. We'll see more about that in a few minutes. Now, says Paul, if we are children, then it follows that we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, or joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. By definition, then, children are heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Paul uses three terms, heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at each one of those terms separately in a few minutes. But first of all, let's think about what the inheritance is. What's the, let's think about what's, what, con, what is contained in the inheritance. What do we actually inherit? Well, the inheritance is the totality of the estate. When a person dies and he leaves to his heirs an estate, they get it all. 
So now, what do we think is God's estate? Not that God has to die, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what is the estate? Well, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth, all of it, is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Everything that you see is God's by right of creatorship, and so are we. He is the one who designed and built the earth, founded it upon the seas. And he maintains it, and he sustains it. And the inheritance is the totality of God's possessions. That's the material part of the inheritance. Inheritances are often made up of material possessions like things, stuff, and money, and then there are intangible assets that are included <clears throat> in the inheritance, such as money that was owed to the deceased, which now becomes part of the inheritance that the heirs receive. Now that person who owed money to the deceased owes money to the heirs, and that's an intangible asset until it's paid. So there are material assets in the inheritance, but there are immaterial or spiritual assets, intangible assets in our inheritance. And as God's children, we inherit intangible benefits. <clears throat> Eternal life is the broad term for all of the intangible benefits that we inherit, but it's a real benefit, and it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, who Ephesians 1, uh, 13 and 14 says, is given to us as a down payment, a guarantee that we will eventually receive the whole of the inheritance. You see verse 14 in Ephesians 1 says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption, that is, the final redemption, the translation into glory, into heaven, that will represent the full inheritance of entering into eternal life in its fullness. We possess it now in shadow, but then we will possess it fully. Our future full possession of eternal life is already guaranteed by the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us and enabling us. We're also shielded by the power of God so that we will make it securely and surely and finally to heaven where we receive the full inheritance. 1 Peter 3 1 3 to 5 says this Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If he did it for Jesus, he can do it for us. That's why we have a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you who by faith are shielded, protected, 
so that you will eventually arrive safely in the position to the position of receiving the inheritance ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, in this life, there's always a chance that we won't inherit. There's an ancestor, and there's us, and there's an inheritance of stuff, but there's always a chance that the inheritance will be spent in the care of the ancestor before it ever comes to us. There's also the chance that we might receive the inheritance and then die before we have any chance to use it. And, of course, there's always the chance that we ourselves might die before, we, before the ancestor, and thus we wouldn't get the, the inheritance. But this inheritance in heaven reserved, is reserved for us, and God shields us from ever finding ourselves in a position where we can't inherit. It's as certain <clears throat> as the keeping power of God. Our eternal inheritance is eternal life and all that comes with it in the future. And, 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 and we inherit eternal life. In a sense, we inherit God. And in another sense, also in Ephesians 1.18, we find that we are God's inheritance. It's a two-way street. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Wow. In Romans chapter 3, 23, we find that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, in the future, God is going to bring us to glory, some of those who were all sinners. He's going to bring us to glory, and we're going to be His inheritance. We get a fuller picture of what it looks like to be God's inheritance when we jump to the back of the book. You ever jump to the back of the book and see how it all ends? Well, if we look at Revelation chapter 21, we find that it ends with us being God's inheritance and He being our inheritance, and you get the full picture in Revelation chapter 21. I believe that the next event in God's program is going to be the rapture of the church in which Jesus Christ comes again and receives or takes His saints out of the world. He, takes, he comes for His saints and then follows a period of judgment and tribulation upon the earth, which is followed again by Jesus' glorious return <clears throat> with His saints, and He sets up a millennial kingdom which lasts for a thousand years, during which time Satan is bound, but at the end of that thousand years he's released and he deceives the nations once more. And then follows a final judgment. This is all in Revelation chapter 20. And then there's a gap. Revelation 20 proceeds into 21, and we're not quite sure what's going on, but I think between 20 and 21 is the passage in Peter when the heavens and the earth pass away with a roar, so that in 21, John can say, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
former heaven and the former earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Not, she wasn't the bride. She was prepared beautifully as a bride would be prepared, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And he will be their God, and he will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning sorrow or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Listen, we live in the old order of things. We live in what John was seeing as the past. But there's coming a time when our inheritance will be fully realized and God will fully realize his inheritance and then will be the state of events where we are related to God as Abba. Now, we are already, but it'll be fully present then. We'll have this intimate, personal relationship with God, like the relationship of a father with his child where he wipes away the tears from his child's eye after he falls down and skins his knee, where he gathers him up into his arms and comforts him. But in those days, at that time, there will not even be any pain, not even be any sorrow, not even be any death. The inheritance, both ways, will be fully realized. We inherit him, and he inherits us. I want to turn to Romans 8, 17 and look at that passage in some detail. Paul uses three terms to describe the consequences of becoming children of God. And why does he use three terms? Why doesn't he just say, if we're children, then we're heirs? But he doesn't. He says, we're heirs, comma, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Seems like an ever-intensifying heirship description. So he's, he's, Paul's not, and, and Paul's not one to throw away words. Each one of these phrases has meaning and specific importance as he examines and looks at this new state that comes about after being adopted as sons, we're now heirs. If we are children, he says, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I don't know if he has this in mind later on when he writes uh, I beg your pardon, if he'd had this in mind earlier when he wrote Galatians, because he wrote Galatians first, and then he wrote Romans, and later on he writes Ephesians. But when I look at Galatians chapter 4, and I see how he uses the term of heir as a child, as one who is immature and needs the supervision of guardians and trustees in order to handle his affairs. He's the heir but he hasn't yet been elevated to sonship. 
And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he's really no better than a slave as far as his daily condition is concerned. And you don't have this slide, but I, I remember that in Galatians chapter 3, he says the law was our guardian. And then in Galatians chapter 4, he says the heir's no better than a slave. He's under the domination. He's under the guardianship of those appointed by the Father until the Father decides that it's time for the services of the guardian to be terminated. And so what he's got in Galatians chapter 4 is a picture of the underage heir. He owns everything, but he's not got that face-to-face relationship with the father. That's not the framework in which he relates to the father. He relates to the father through the framework of guardians and trustees, and they manage his affairs, and they get him up in the morning, and they feed him his meals, and they put him to bed at night, and it's the law. The law is the guardian that took care of us so that we would long for Christ or long for a different way. The guardian is the guy who puts the kid to bed at night and he says, you sure messed up today. You'll have to try harder tomorrow. That's what the law does, see. You never get good enough. If you're only relating to God through the framework of law, you never succeed in really getting face-to-face with God. Always between you and God is the law. Paul says in Galatians 4, what I'm saying is this. As long as the heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also we, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Do wrong, you get punished. Do good, you get acknowledged. Maybe. But always your sins are before you. Always your failures are right there. And I think that when Paul writes heirs in Romans 7, 8, 17, he's referring to these underage heirs of Galatians chapter 4. And he's pointing out that until the father decides that it's time for the son to step in or the heir to step in and the child to step into sonship and take on the responsibilities of heirship in the, in the father's family, he's under the law, which is an oppressive and sometimes abusive guardian. He can never measure up. It's never enough. In fact, Paul will say in another place that the law activated sin in me. I wouldn't have known sin except there was a law there because before the law, there was no sin. But when the law came, sin activated in me, and I died. And that's the function of the law. The law provided a framework uh, of relationship to God that could never save, only condemn. Nobody could keep the law perfectly. 
but that was the function of it. It was to lead us to Christ. God, Paul says, in God's timing, he let the law be in place from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, at which point it became the fullness of time that he refers to in, um, in verse 5 of chapter 4. When the fullness of time came, God decided that the services of the law were no longer needed because he sent his son. And faith now became the operative principle. Faith became the way we relate to God. Of course, he's talking to the Galatians, so the subtext to the Galatians is, you guys came out of that old law by faith, and now you're being taught that you need to go back to it and keep the law and be circumcised. That's coming from Jerusalem and some of the Jews who wanted to make the law an addition, an, an add-on to faith, or the faith to add on to the law. Paul says, no, it's faith or nothing. And so the Father, in the fullness of time, terminated the services of the guardian oppressive law and made faith the operative principle by sending his son who redeemed those under the law so that heirs could now enter into their full heirship, so to speak, could now enter into their full sonship, be related to the father on a more intimate and personal basis through faith because all that Jesus did on the cross became ours. Every, everything that he did on the cross in terms of satisfying God's righteous wrath became ours. We were given his spirit. We're no longer minors, no longer underage, but those who've trusted Christ have become children and heirs operating in daily and intimate relationship with God. So if we go back to Romans 8:17 and see the second term that Paul uses to describe these children who have become heirs, he says we're heirs of God. He says if we're if we're children, then we're heirs, and we're heirs of God. Well, in, in our law and in, in Jewish law as well, before a person can inherit, there must be the death of the ancestor. Technically, no one's an heir whose ancestor is still living. It might be an heir an, an heir apparent or an heir presumptive, but technically no one's an heir until the person dies. Now, there is an instrument in our law also to let living, to let living ancestors uh, bring their uh, descendants into joint heirship, but that's, and, and that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. If we apply our law or Jewish law to this text, though, it raises the question as to how God could possibly die. But in Roman law, there were two differences 
that help us make sense of this term, heirs of God. First of all, there was an element in Roman law where it was not necessary for the ancestor to die before the heirs became full heirs. The father could actually name his son as heir and still retain his rights as head of the family. He still supervised the family and the son. But both father and son worked together in the family enterprise. Now there's a different dynamic in the relationship. Father is still the head. The son's legal position <clears throat> had changed, though. Now he's the father's designated heir, and still the father had the final say in all matters while still living. So it wasn't necessary for a father to die in order to bring an heir into heirship in Roman law. The second difference in Roman law was that rather than the heir becoming the father's legal representative and yet being an entity in his own right, The son was viewed as, in, in religious purposes and viewed in legal purposes, as continuing the very personality of the father. He didn't become his own legal entity. He continued the personality of the father, and when he grew old and brought an heir in uh, to follow him, that heir would also continue to continue his personality in terms of law and in terms of religious practice the son never became an independent legal entity he continued the personality of the father as heirs of God possessing the spirit of his son in a very real sense he is us and we are him his spirit lives in us. And we are not merely the legal representatives of God. We're actually continuing his presence on earth. We're actually continuing his personality as we walk in the spirit and don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. The prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 <laughs> excuse me, has been answered. The prayer where he said, Father, I pray that they may all be one and that they may be one in us. And then he says, I in them and you in me, this interweaving of personality between God and man, not a separate legal representative of God, but an actual continuing of God's personality in the world. That prayer of Jesus has been answered. Because in Roman law, it wasn't necessary for the ancestor to die. And it was the case that the, that the descendant carried on the actual personality of the ancestor. So Paul can say to the Galatian Christians who are wavering between going back to keeping the law and, and, and staying in the faith, he can say to them, the time has come for you to put off and forget about the guardianship of the law. 
You're heirs of God. You don't have to go back to the law. You continue his personality. Verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4, when the time, set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law in order that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. I'm sure it's true that, that God had prepared the physical world and the, the uh, Roman Empire for the coming of his son. And the Roman infrastructure was in good shape and the peace of Rome pervaded the, most of the world and the emperors of Rome facilitated the different practices of the different uh, uh, countries and tribes under their uh, control. But what's also true about the timing of God's Son coming to earth is the dispensing of the law. It was time for God to say, law, enough. I no longer need you. My son has come, and he's redeeming those under the law. And so they are both heirs and heirs of God. The third phrase, joint heirs with Christ, is how he concludes chapter 8, verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In our law and in Roman law, and in Jewish law too, there was provision for the estate to pass to more than one heir. How many people died only having one child? How many people died only having one heir to pass the inheritance on to? Many times there were multiple heirs. When, I, when my parents died, my siblings and I received an inheritance. But we divided it up immediately. In Roman law, it wasn't necessary, it wasn't automatic that the inheritance be divided. The inheritance could continue to be held by the multiple heirs in common, a community of property inheritance, you see. Multiple heirs from the same family could hold the inheritance in common. Acquisitions of one or investments of one um, uh, became to the benefit of all. The estate, the inheritance was held in common, and all the heirs participated as their gifts allowed and dictated. All participated in the inheritance for the overall good and expansion of the inheritance. And it didn't matter whether one was adopted or one was a natural child. They all had the same participation in the common inheritance. So we're joint heirs with Christ. We participate in the overall inheritance with him. What is he heir of? What does Christ inherit that we participate 
in with him. You know, the author of Hebrews shed some light on this because Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past, <clears throat> God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, get this, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. If Christ is heir of all things and we're joint heirs with Christ, when seen through the lens of Roman law, he, together with us, holds all things. The whole universe becomes this gigantic community of property. Acquisitions of one contribute to the benefit of the inheritance as a whole. So as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are added to the inheritance, to God's inheritance. And they're added to the inheritance that we participate in. Jesus is worshipped in Revelation chapter 5 because he purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation from all time periods. And he's made them kings and priests of God. <laughs> and then there's, here's another, here's a startling assertion. They, the co-inheritors, the joint heirs, they who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, they will reign upon the earth. That's Revelation chapter 5, 9 and 10. Jesus makes acquisitions that expand the inheritance every time an individual believes. Acquisitions on the part of the heir um, contribute to the well-being uh, uh, and building up of the whole inheritance and continue to benefit the community that shares the property. Sometimes we acquire spiritual things. They might be spiritual victories over temptation, they might be someone leading someone else to Christ. Might be times when we reject the desires of the flesh and walk in the Spirit. All of those are, are victories and add to the overall inheritance, intangible benefits of the, of the inheritance that benefit all the members. All the members' gifts are used to benefit the whole community of joint heirs. And material blessings are given to us, but not necessarily for us. We get to use them to expand the kingdom. Maybe we give money to evangelistic enterprises, missionaries, who in turn bring people to Christ. We have a part using our material blessings. We have a part in that spiritual ministry and the expansion of the great inheritance. Hebrews 2, the next chapter after Hebrews 1, which that's a profound statement. Hebrews 2 tells us that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus himself. So the inheritance is held 
by multiple heirs who are related to Jesus in bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10 says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for God, that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Don't think that Jesus needed to be made perfect from any moral imperfection. The only thing Jesus needed to be made perfect was in experiencing the whole human condition so that he could be a complete savior. And so that, for that reason, he suffered death because death is the common suffering and lot of every human being. And he wanted to bring sons and daughters to glory out of the human race. So making him perfect was not a, a case of making him any morally better. It was a, a case of completing and perfecting his saviorhood, if you would. Both the one who makes people holy, those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Don't you love that, that understatement there? He's not ashamed. That means he's actually overjoyed, but we wouldn't want to overstate it here so we'll understate it. He's overjoyed to call them brothers and sisters. Through his temporary humiliation and suffering, Jesus brought many sons to glory. In suffering, Jesus participated completely in the human condition. His saviorhood was what God completed and perfected. So the joint heirs of Romans 8.17 equal the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 2.10-11. And the all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, Jesus brings out of that group many sons and daughters to glory. We fell short of the glory. Jesus brings us to the glory, naming them brothers and sisters. Summarize in conclusion, the inheritance is the totality of the assets of our Heavenly Father, God. The time is long past when our old guardian and tutor, the law, could dominate and enslave us. Faith is now the means by which we participate in the life of God, in the inheritance of God. God fired the old oppressive guardian's called the law, put his son in our place, in, in their place as our elder brother. It's not necessary for God to die so that we can become heirs of God and so that the inheritance can pass to us. We enter into the in terms of the inheritance by the new birth. So birth, not death, is the entrance into the inheritance. We're filled with the Spirit, and so we continue the very personality of our Father. And then as joint heirs, we together with Jesus hold the property in common. God controls and supervises. God runs the show, so to speak. We look to Him for direction. We look to Him for His will. Jesus' acquisitions continue to build the inheritance. 
continue to build the property of the state. So that when God finally brings heaven and earth back together again and the old order of things has passed away, that's the order in which we live, he will, by the riches of his great grace and his love for the world, have achieved a complete and final victory over his enemies. Satan, fallen angels, unrepentant sinners who rejected God's offer of forgiveness based on Jesus' death. His victory over all his enemies will be complete. Unfallen angels will watch and say, amazing grace. You and I, restored humanity from all walks of life and from different times and places, will enjoy the inheritance, serve the Father for all eternity as he directs. If, if this... If this, if this Bible were the product of human imagination, you, you, you couldn't hardly believe it. In fact, if we read science fiction and the best human imagination portrays the most outlandish scenarios for the future and there's this unspoken agreement between the author and the reader, hey, this really isn't true. We know that, but we read it for relaxation or diversion. But this, this is true. This really is going to happen because the Word of God and God Himself standing behind His Word has guaranteed that it will happen. Revelation 21 and 22 will take place. And so it's an amazing thing to us. Makes us go, <gasps> Isaiah writes in 64, verse 4, and it's repeated in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human mind has conceived, wait for it, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Boggles the imagination makes us fall down and worship the God who would do this. Yes, he does it for us, but he does it also to build his kingdom, to build the inheritance, to build his son's body, the church. Ultimately, it's all going to be for his glory to the praise of his glory, the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. Paul sort of runs out of ways to say it in Ephesians 1. These blessings stagger our imagination. But then it is God whose ways are far above ours. Thoughts are far above ours. So we just trust him. We believe. And we come into this relationship by faith, and that makes me want to say to you this morning, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? That's the starting point. Have you believed? You say, what does it mean to believe? Well, it means simply to put your full weight 
on the work of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done on the cross. Much like you walk into this auditorium and you look at a chair and you sit in it and you trust it and you keep on trusting it. You stop thinking about the fact that it's holding you up and you get involved in what's going on up here and the worship and everything else. But the chair continues to hold. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, it's simply a reaching out to receive the offered gift of God. I do hope you'll consider seriously the state of your relationship with God through faith. You can say to God, dear God, I, I, I agree, I'm, I'm a sinner. Please put the benefits of your son's death to my account. I believe he died for me. I believe I should have died where he did. But he took my place. God promises to save all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you say it's not for you, not for me. Maybe you say I'm not ready. Maybe you say I don't want to. But I'll tell you this. When you want to be saved, you can be. You do have to want it. So in one sense, it's up to you. In another sense, God will provide the want, and that part will be up to him. But the important point is that, like the Philippian jailer who was weighing the alternatives of killing himself or staying alive till morning to let his superiors kill him for his failure to keep the prisoners in the jail, Paul says, we're all here, don't hurt yourself. He says, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Father, I pray for each one here, for those who have trusted you and are trusting you. I pray that you will give us renewed insight into our relationship with you by faith and help us to walk by faith, not fulfilling the laws or the desires of the flesh. I pray for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ but may be thinking about it. I pray that you will not let them delay but that you will bring them into full and complete faith and fellowship with yourself. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the inheritance that we look forward to participating in with him under your supervision for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.